everyone. Welcome to Making Room on the Pew, a podcast for the church misfits and outcasts. This is a podcast for the church misfits and outcasts, the people the gatekeepers of the faith love to keep out. Here we talk about building a fully inclusive church with the people who are actually out there in the world doing the work. Join us to learn more about experiences and perspectives different from your own while we create the church we are all longing for. Today on the podcast, we have Steve Austin. Steve Austin was a pastor when he nearly died by suicide. Since recovering from the worst day of his life, Steve has mapped out the exact methods he used to create lasting change. He is passionate about sharing those self-care and self-compassion techniques with others. Steve is the author of two Amazon bestsellers, From Pastor to a Psych Ward and Catching Your Breath. You can follow his work and sign up for his free masterclass, 11 Proven Ways to Calm Down, at IamSteveAustin.com. Steve lives in Birmingham, Alabama, with his wife, Lindsay, and their two kids. So I first met Steve um, online, actually on Twitter, um, maybe about a year ago. Um, and his work is, um, amazing. I think you guys are really going to, uh, resonate with what Steve had to say, um, and share with us today. So we talk a lot about self-care and about mental health, um, because that is largely where Steve and his, uh, ministry, I don't know if he would use the word ministry, but, um, his ministry lives now. Um, so we talk a lot about Steve's experience with suicide. I talk about my own experience with diagnoses of depression and anxiety and, um, finally, eventually going to the doctor, um, to find medication for that. Um, we talk even some about fear-based theology, which I was not expecting, but we kind of talk about that and how that plays into mental health um, struggles, which uh, is so real. And Steve had a ton of really great stuff to say about that. So friends, welcome with me to the Making Room on the Pew podcast, Steve Austin. Okay, Steve, thanks so much for being um, on the Making Room on the Pew podcast. We're so excited to have you today. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. So I gave you a short professional introduction at the top of the show before we began recording, but I would love um, to give you the space to go ahead and tell our listeners who have maybe never connected with you before a little bit more about yourself and your work. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that we would talk about me and my work this week because I'm on the blog this week. I'm asking what I think is the most important question that each one of us can ask ourselves, and that is, who are you? So Hmm. if you'd ask me, who are you? Tell me a little bit more about yourself and your work. Five, six, seven, eight years ago, I would have started by emphasizing my work as an author, as a speaker, and a life coach. And the difference 
these days is that I'm finding my worth in who I am, not in what I do. Mm. Not to say that my work's not important. It is important. I'm incredibly grateful to do what I do, which is leading people on the sacred journey from chaos to calm. But the difference is now I can honestly say that if all of that went away tomorrow, I'd be okay because my worth isn't found in my day job anymore. So who am I? What's the most important work I do? It's under the roof of my own home. It's loving my mm. wife really well. It's raising my two kids really well. It's, it's that little four-year-old little girl who is already so independent and self-sufficient and isn't going to define her worth by the men in her life. That's one of the most important things that I do. So, yeah, I write some books and I do some speaking and I get to coach people and it's a gift. But nothing's more important than the three people I get to share this home with. I love that. Um, everyone that I have asked so far on the podcast have said, um, oh, I'm, um, uh, you know, a wife or a mom or I um, am an author. Like they have all talked about who they are in relation to their work. So I love that you brought in that um, important aspect of, yeah, I do all of these things, but my worth is found in who I am. Well, it, um, it has changed me a lot. I, I, I really dive into it deep on the blog this week because my, my granddad, who was the strongest influence in my life, uh, passed away in February. And his tombstone says, Ben House, 1935 to 2018, here lies a man. And mm -hmm. then this gentleman from our community um, passed away last week, and the headline for his obituary said, John Long, 50, an accountant. And both of mm -hmm. those have just given me pause to go, like for me, I don't, you know, if I, let's say I die at 80, I don't want the headstone for my, or the headline for my obituary to say Steve Austin, 80, an author. Like, right. <laughs> I want to be so much more than that. So I've, it's really been on my heart lately. Who am I and what do I, what do I, what do I want to matter? What do I really want my legacy to be one day? What do I want people, I, you know, whatever we think about politics. I watched George Bush talk about his dad and give the eulogy at, at the funeral and get so choked up. And it's like, man, I want to, I want to matter to somebody like that one day. Yeah. Wow, so five minutes in, and you've already got me thinking. I am probably okay. going to be thinking about this all day. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, so um, I want to talk a little bit about um, your passion. Um, I think probably what most people think of when they think of Steve Austin is um, mental illness. Um, you are always talking about and educating about and bringing awareness to mental health. Um, and this is a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. I mean, I have personal experience with diagnoses of anxiety and depression, and no one talks about it. Um, so I, I have loved following you on Twitter and reading your work. And um, I have really been encouraged by what you have been doing in this realm of mental health and uh, talking about it, not in a weird way, not in a shameful way, just a very practical, 
personal way, um, sharing your story. So I'm wondering, how did you begin do the, doing this work in this space that everyone else runs away from? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I started doing this work after nearly dying. So my bio mentions that I was a pastor when I nearly died by suicide. And that is true. Uh, I had already been a blogger and a pastor and a podcast host. And after the first year of recovery from the suicide attempt, my wife and I sat down and had a really honest conversation and said, you know, I think it's time to share. And so I hopped back on the blog for the first time in a year and wrote a story around a thousand words from pastor to a psych ward. And I posted it on my blog and um, I, the, the rest is history, I guess. Um, people from around the world literally emailed and commented and said, thank you. And I was just completely blown away by the number of Christians who were suffering in silence. I genuinely mm. believed I was the only one. And unfortunately, that is the lie of a shame-based culture, this culture of scarcity that Brene Brown talks about so brilliantly. And it's perpetuated even more by fear-based theology in fear-based churches. And all mm -hmm. of it is designed to keep us bound by fear, shame, and guilt to keep us quiet, to keep us needing the man to have the answer, right? And just take mm -hmm. this magic Jesus pill and your life will be better. Um, thankfully, perfect love casts out fear. And there are more and more people coming forward, stories like mine, sharing stories like yours, we're starting to emerge from the shadows and we're beginning to find courage and we're beginning to tap into vulnerability. And it is, it's the most beautiful thing. My friend Paul, who wrote The Shack, talks about how we're invited into other people's stories and that is holy ground. And it's true. It's like, man, take your shoes off. You know, this, this thing, when you open up and share about your very worst day, or you open up and you just give that space to do what Brene Brown calls the, the two most powerful words in the world, which are me too. It's transformative. I don't need a sermon. I don't need cherry pick scriptures. I just need you to invite me into your story to give me permission to be a human being, to remind me that I'm not alone, that I'm not crazy, that I'm loved at the core of who I am, that I am, that each of us are a piece of God. And it's all going to be okay if we will stay together, if we will make love our religion, if we will let kindness be the language that we use and the currency that we use to communicate and oh man we can we can make it but if we live in fear shame and guilt whether that's through culture or politics or theology it is going to kill us so that's why i do what i do that's why i'm passionate about it because i think that yes i have a diagnosis of ptsd 
anxiety, depression, those things are very true and very real. And I think that we need mental health professionals to help with those things. However, I think just as much as all three of those things combined, I think it was the shame of everything I'd lived through that really nearly killed me. I think shame is the killer. Yeah, um, I appreciate you talking about the fear-based theology. Um, I I grew up in a very like evangelical um, church, and I had no Same. idea that there was anything right. Like I had no idea there was anything different until um, I met my wife, who was actually a, a pastor in the United Church of Christ and like her theology was so different. And I kept thinking like, how did I not know that there is all of this out here? Because I was told my whole life, um, sure, you, you struggle with anxiety, but give it to God and everything will be fine. Yeah. Or um, pray more and then you won't experience such bad depression. I mean, um, how many times did you pray to be in your life, Bailey? right? I think I prayed the sinner's prayer every single night for years because I was terrified that I was going to die in my sleep. Yep. I absolutely believed I could live for Jesus my whole life. And if I'm driving down the highway and an 18 wheeler crosses the red light and nails me at an intersection and I see it coming and I say, oh shit, I'm done. I'm going to hell. That's it. It's over. Like, that's Mm -hmm. the kind of crazy crap that we teach people. We don't teach people that they are loved because of who they are, and there's nothing they can do. It's it's Brennan Manning, right, saying Mm -hmm. God loves you as you are and not as you should be because you're never going to be as you should be, right? We're never going to be perfect, but perfect is not the goal. Uh, I don't even think holiness is the goal. We, gosh, I grew up in the, um, in the assemblies of God church. And so it was the Holy Ghost <laughs> and sanctification and holiness. And I don't even think holiness is the goal. I think wholeness is the goal. Mm. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. It's, it's crazy to me um, what I grew up believing. And I, like you were talking about with the shame, I mean, I think that's definitely why it took me years of experiencing depression and anxiety and years of having those diagnoses before I finally went to the doctor and said, um, aren't there antidepressants for this? Like, is there something that is going to make me not feel miserable for the rest of my life? Yeah. I mean, it took me so long to do that because of that shame and that stigma of saying, Yes, I am on Lexapro and it's saving my life. Oh man, Lexapro is my very first. Oh goodness. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it took me having a very public panic attack at work. I was working as a dispatcher in a 911 call center and I froze, oh. completely froze on a call. Uh, I was 20 four, maybe 22, 23, 24, somewhere in there. Um, mm-hmm. Completely froze in the middle of a 911 call. Just, I mean, legit froze like a statue could talk, couldn't move. And I laugh about it now because it seems so bizarre. But my my supervisor came over and was like, dude, like, hey, whoa, there's a call here. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? And yeah. uh, and I, I couldn't. And she took my headset off and, and was like, what's I said, I, I think I'm having a heart attack. And she said, go to the bathroom. 
go to the bathroom. Like, we're going to go to the bathroom. Like, what? So I did. I went to the bathroom and I'm sweating and I'm nauseous and my heart's beating out of my chest. And I ended up shirtless laying on a tile floor in the bathroom because it was the only way that I could feel like I'm like I'm touching the ground I'm cooling off Mm. I think maybe I'm not gonna die but I'm just pouring sweat and it was that was I I finally got my shirt back on and went in my supervisor's office and she said Steve this is like this is a panic attack this is serious business you need to go home Um, but before you go home you need to stop the doctor's office and say hey I'm not okay I need help and it was the first time anybody at 22 23 24 first time anyone had said you should go see a doctor about this. Not, let me yeah. pray for you. Let me put a, an olive oil cross <laughs> on your forehead and pray for healing. You know, like you should probably do mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so I, I want to talk, we're going to talk about your new book too, but I want to talk a little bit about um, From Pastor to a Psych Ward, Recovery from a Suicide Attempt is Possible. So this chronicled your journey um, to I guess kind of rock bottom to the brink of suicide yeah, and then turning back into a healthy space, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Um, that story and all the details you put into it is so raw and emotional. Um, why did you choose to not only tell this story, but put it out in ink for the entire world to read? <laughs> Uh, I, oh man. Okay. So after that first year of recovery, it was, it was just time. Writing had, it had always been cathartic for me. It had always been therapeutic for me. And so after a year of intense personal counseling, intense marriage counseling, um, it, it was just, it was the next natural step to invite people in. So here's the, the part that people go, wait, what? So I had been a youth pastor. Um, I was a worship leader. I had a radio show in Birmingham. I was a pretty public guy, at least locally at the time. And what my wife and I decided, drive, she came, I'd, I'd spent a week in the hospital, a week on the psych ward three days in ICU, the whole deal. And we're driving home that two hours because it was two hours away because the last thing I wanted was for my family to find me. And we're driving home and it was like, what, like, what next? What do we, what do I do now? I, I'm jobless. I'm churchless for the first time in my life. I'd been working since I was 14 years old. What do I do now? And we decided that if we were going to stay together, if we were going to get help, if we were going to heal, we were going to heal because we were broken, um, that we weren't going to tell anyone. So her immediate family knew, my immediate family knew, and her best friend and my best friend. So we're talking less than 10 people in the whole world knew what actually happened. Um, Other people Mm -hmm. thought that I had been hospitalized for pneumonia and couldn't have visitors. I was in ICU. And we kept the biggest secret for a whole year. And the reason that we did that is because you ever been 
the person who's lost someone at the funeral and you're standing next to the casket and people are filing by and you know they're they're patting the person on the hand or they're hugging you and saying i'm so sorry for your loss or you know the heavenly choir got one more angel or all the crap they say and you're the one comforting the other people when you're the one grieving <laughs> you know that mm-hmm. how that happens so we yep. didn't want that to happen to us we said you know what we are we are crushed wounded broken nearly beyond repair and this is absolutely not the time to be comforting everyone else we need help and so we decided not to tell anyone for a year and we didn't um and so when that year was over we said okay you know what, now it's, now it's time to tell the truth. Now it's time to invite people in. Now it's time to share this journey because we were really healing. We had, it's, it's almost like physically, you know, you've, you've been through some terrible, horrible, tragic accident and you've been doing physical therapy for a year, stretching and moving and, you know, recovering and it's painful and, but you do the thing and then you're, now you're starting to walk again, you know, and that sort of stuff. And it's like, boy, that first time, you know, that person, they're in the, the physical therapy room and they take those first steps and the family's there and everyone's crying. It's like, Oh, this is so beautiful. It's like, yeah, but you have no idea the work I've done for the last six months or whatever. So that's a long story to say we had done all the hard work and we were finally ready to be public. And so why, why did we do it? I knew that if my story could save one life, or, or not even save a life, but just let one other person know that they're not alone before they take things as far as I did, that it would be worth it. So it is memoir while sort of being instructional. Um, it's, it's my journey. It is. It's the pieces of my life leading up to a suicide attempt, and it includes toxic theology. It includes childhood sexual abuse. And then it focuses on what do you do the first year of recovery after the very worst day of your life when everything's fallen apart. So we talk about setting boundaries and being honest and working through shame and all of those things. Yeah. And it's, it's really powerful. Um, And I know, I mean, those people who um, maybe are feeling a similar way and have no one to talk to, that's going to be such a resource um, for them. It's, it's great. Um, Thank you. So I want to, yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, mental health and the church and specifically like mental health and pastors. So you've talked about how you um, were a pastor and uh, I mean, I'm married to a pastor, so I have a little bit, bit of a different view um, of pastors. But I know so many people refuse to think about their pastors in this way, that they may actually be human um, and, and have uh, struggles and issues and things that they don't talk about. Um, and so it's this really interesting cycle of pastors don't talk about it because their congregants don't want to hear about it. So in turn, pastors 
continue to not talk about it. I mean, it's just this like such a vicious uh, cycle of never talking about mental health because it will make someone uncomfortable. However, I was doing some research and according to Christianity today, I mean, 65% of people who have a person in their family who has a mental health diagnosis wants their pastor to talk about mental illness. And even among people who don't have personal experiences with mental health diagnoses, 59% want to hear their pastor talk more about it. And 23% of pastors say that they have personally struggled with mental illness of some kind. So, I mean, these are really important statistics, but we're still not talking about mental health in the church. Pastors are still afraid to talk about it. Congregants still don't want to tell people that they have um, mental health issues. I mean, why are we still not talking about this in the church? (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm going to answer this in reverse. So I think that it's not just a mental health issue. Uh, I think there's a larger question that's why are so many pastors, not all, but a large number, still reluctant to talk about anything that matters from the pulpit? Why are we not talking about refugees being gassed at the southern border? Why are we not making room for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters? Why isn't there more discussion around racism and bigotry? I think it all goes back to fear. We live in a society that is plagued by the fear of the other when really there is no other. We are, I mentioned earlier, we're all a piece of God. We all belong together. We all belong to God. But until we stop yelling and demonizing and start listening, nothing's going to change. And that's, excuse me, that's not just the church. That's the political arena. That's everywhere else. We have perfected the art of screaming and we've lost our minds. We've lost our souls. We've lost our peace in the process. So, yeah, our pastors are afraid to talk about it. Our churches are afraid to hear about it because we have idolized our pastors, so we expect them to be perfect. It's interesting for me to go from being a pastor to stepping out of that wanting nothing to do with the church, wanting nothing to do with a pastoral role, into being a mm-hmm. life coach. Well, guess what? People expect life coaches to have all their shit together all the time too and never have an issue and everything's just peachy. It's like, ha, I, there's, I'm a human first. And I think that's what we've forgotten. We have forgotten our shared humanity. We have forgotten that before I'm ever a pastor, before I'm ever a Christian, before I'm ever a Republican or a Democrat or a man or a woman or black or white or straight or gay or any of these other labels and boxes that we put around people. I'm a human being. And just Mm -hmm. by the fact that I'm a human being, I can be wounded. I can be broken. I can need something again, more than a magic Jesus pill. I don't mean that to say, let go of your faith and Jesus can't heal you. You know what? Jesus can. Jesus obviously did some miraculous, amazing things in the Bible. 
but those things are called miracles because they don't happen every day. And so pray, pray for your loved one who is sick, pray for your loved one who is sick, including mentally ill, pray for, you know, all these things, ask for a miracle, believe for these great big things. And in the meantime, go to counseling, go to the doctor, take your medicine, right? And so if we would give our pastors permission to be human, yeah, it would, it would change it would change everything. Yeah. Um, I, I appreciate how you answered that. And it wasn't just like, a, um, oh, so we need to um, make our churches more welcoming. And this is how, I mean, you're right. We don't, um, we don't let people be people first. Nope. Um, and it's especially pastors, which was such um, an interesting thing to me when I became a pastor's wife. I mean, I like, I guess in my own mind had not thought that pastors had it all together. So when I stepped into that role of a pastor's wife and then I started going to church and people, I heard the way people were talking about my wife, Sarah, I was like, oh my goodness, are you sure? Do you know her? Like, <laughs> let me tell you some stories here. Yeah, um, it's terrible. It's so the loneliest I, place in the world. Yes. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I appreciate the way you um, answered that question. Sure. So I, uh, I want to talk about your new book, Catching Your Breath. So I listened to it on Audible. So for all Yay. of, or Audible, is that what, Amazon? Yeah. yeah. Um, Audible, yeah. Yes. Thank you. Um, so for all of you guys out there, if you don't have time to sit and read because um, I don't, even though I love it, um, get the audiobook. It's amazing. You read it, which I love. I love when the authors are the ones who do the audiobook. Let me tell I you mean, something. It just sounds weird. If there's an audiobook <laughs> and the author doesn't narrate it, I won't listen. I'm not buying it. I want yeah, to hear like the nuance. I want, yeah, like, yes. I, like uh, that's great that you got some voice actor that has this amazing voice. But they, they don't, they can't possibly understand, you know, the heart and the, all the nuance and all the. Oh my gosh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a stickler for that. If you didn't narrate yeah. your book, I'm not listening to it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so tell us about um, catching your breath. Yeah. Okay. Sure. <laughs> um, I, I love to talk about this book, so um, you can cut me off if you need to. I'll try to keep it brief. <laughs> but um, this this book is sort of the it is the natural response to from pastor to a psych ward. And so what I mean is, from pastor to a psych ward was written from a place of deep pain, and then catching your breath was written from a place of immense hope and wholeness. And so catching your breath is a book for anyone who feels or has ever felt completely overwhelmed. Anyone who is living through a moment that has just knocked the wind out of their lungs and left them gasping for air, gasping for hope. That's the person who's going to connect with this book on a really deep level. So we go through unthinkable things that we may have never shared with another human being. And when you're living through that very worst moment, it, 
it's normal to feel breathless. It's normal to go, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. Uh, to, to not even have, like you can't even put that into words. That you, you can't even verbalize, I don't know what to do. You're just stuck. You're just frozen. You're me sitting in that chair in the 911 call center frozen. And so mm. catching your breath is the journey from that guy who was stuck and frozen. It's the journey that I've taken to find and cultivate inner peace. And so From Pastor to a Psych Ward was written with a, primarily a Christian mental health audience in mind. And that's not the case with Catching Your Breath. Uh, I, I still talk about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and Catching Your Breath. But the only reason I do that is because that's the lens through which I've most often seen the divine. But I, one of the things I'm most proud of about this book is it's a book where I think anyone can feel welcome and safe. It's a book for Christians, but it's also, it's equally a book for agnostics and atheists and Buddhists and, and anyone from any walk of life, because again, it's a book about being human. It's, a book for anyone who's just overwhelmed, feels like they're drowning, feels like they're out of options. It's a great big permission slip and an invitation to exhale all your fear, shame, and guilt and just be human again. Yeah. Um, and I, I love that in you're in the book, you talk about, okay, so I'm going to talk about God and Jesus because this is how I've experienced it. But however you believe, however you've experienced the divine, um, I honor that. Um, And that's just, I mean, that's so inclusive. I was really pleasantly surprised um, because we don't, we don't see that a lot. We just kind of assume that every one who's reading what we write believes the way we do. Yeah. Um, it's Well, it's it's absolutely never going to land on the shelf at Lifeway. <laughs> and so I sort of wear <laughs> that as a badge of honor, you know, like, yay, score. Um, but yeah, I why would I not honor the journey of somebody else? Here's, here's the truth for me, and, and this is a super heretical thing to say, but if I was born in the Far East, I'd be Buddhist. If I was born in the Middle mm-hmm. East, I'd be Muslim. You know, like... The, it, <laughs> If I was right. Native American, I'd, I would embrace that Native American spirituality. I think that I honestly think we're all talking about the same thing. And we just yeah. have different lenses. We just have different words. And people can disagree. That's okay. I'm not trying to change anybody's thought. If like, no, Jesus is the core and that's the only thing, that, that's fine. If that is your, that's absolutely, I absolutely respect that. But I personally think we're all talking about the same thing. So let's just be kind. Let's just make room. Yeah, exactly. Um, So in Catching Your Breath, you talk about things which prevent us from talking more about mental illness and being more open and honest. Um, You talk about silence, shame, and stigma. Um, So I'd love to talk about that a little bit. I mean, how do we... um, kind of stand against that shame and that stigma that keeps us from being honest. Mm, Yeah. I think it starts one story at a time. So Mm -hmm. when I start to own my story, when I start to speak up, 
when I begin to tell the truth, when I give myself permission to embrace my journey, all parts of it, everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, the unthinkable, when I begin to do that, I in turn empower and encourage you to do the very same thing. So shame is pervasive in our culture and it is contagious, but so is courage. So is vulnerability. It's a chain reaction. So vulnerability begets courage and courage begets vulnerability. It's again, it's why Brene Brown says two of the most powerful words in the world are me too. So when I tell this story and you're sitting there thinking I'm the only one and I share my story and you go, no way. Oh my gosh. Me too. It changes everything. When you invite people into the holy ground of your story, you give me permission to take my shoes off. You remind me that I'm not alone. When you talk about the things that you've lived through and you're currently living through and you give me permission to be human, it changes everything. And so, you know, you look at the news today. You look at our culture today. You just look at American society and how crazy we are, how angry we are, how divided we are. If we would pull back all the masks, peel off all the labels, and start with that shared humanity as our common ground, I, th I really believe it would change things. But as long as we continue to focus on our labels and our boxes, we are going to remain divided. We are going to remain fearful of the other. We're going to keep our mouths shut. We're going to preach very vanilla sermons, you know, that just sort of feel like an episode of Mr. Rogers, rather than really talking about the things that are killing us and killing our neighbors. We're just going to, you know, give three little points and make you feel good, and you're going to go home. And isn't Jesus lovely? But if we would... If we would do stuff like, if we would move programs like Grief Share or Alcoholics Anonymous, if we would move those things out of the basement and right into the middle of the freaking sanctuary, I think we'd invite the real Jesus back into our churches. The real Jesus who is messy. <laughs> the real Jesus who was tired and took a nap. The real Jesus who was over overwhelmed by the crowd and pulled away and said, you know what? I have extroverted all I can do today. Brother's going to go in the boat across over there to the other side of the lake. I need a break because wow, you people are great, great, right? I think that if we would do that, oh my gosh, but until we do that, and if we don't do that, we're going to continue to operate these Christian country clubs where only the people who are the best dressed, only the people who give the most, only the people who seem to have their shit together feel welcome. And if you don't have the best clothes, if you don't seem to have it all together, if you can't give, you're going to stay quiet. You're going to hide in the pew. You're going to keep your mouth shut. You're going to keep your head down. You're going to try your best to fly under the radar. And so we do this really great thing of putting, come just as you are on our marquee outside. And we don't mean it. We don't mean it. It's a big fat lie. Mm. Yeah. Um, I know that's I, not real I'm, encouraging and super optimistic, but, you know, let's be real here. No, yeah, but, but that is real. And I think that um, is 
what we need right now, honestly. I mean, I think a lot of us, we know the good news. Now we need someone to be real about it. Yeah. And to be honest about it. Yeah. And um, I think you can do both. I think you can be raw and honest and share and still be respectful and still be kind and still make room for people who don't quite see it like you do. Um, I, I think that if, if we would, gosh, okay, let's think about Christmas for a second. He rules the world with truth and grace, right? That's how he mm-hmm. rules the world. It's truth and it's grace. Let's tell the truth. Let's share the gospel. Let's talk about, you know, hope and transformation and redemption and restoration. And let's do all that with grace and kindness that is just sloppy and overflowing and making room for the messiest people that you know. If we really did that, our parking lots would be packed every Sunday. People would be lined out the door trying to get in to find truth and grace. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I love that you talked about um, that human connection. Um, that reminds me of, so I was a social work major. Um, I was a social worker and of what seems like another life. Um, mm-hmm. And I, uh, one of the things that I remember most about my social work career, I went to Ohio State. Uh, university and we had this one class where this professor was amazing I mean she did everything that was like weird or like Mm. she had like just these weird ways of like doing things that made us all think about stuff and and one of one of the things that she did we all lined up in the classroom and she said when I say something that is you take a step forward and so she said hard things like, um, if you are in uh, recovery from alcohol or another drug, take a step forward. If you are part of the LGBTQ community and you haven't come out because you're terrified, take a step forward. Oh, wow. I mean, it was hard stuff. And at the end, every single one of us was sobbing. <sighs> and yet we all, I mean, that created a community to- for the rest <clears throat> of right? For the rest of the semester, like we were so close. We talked about things we never would have talked about otherwise, because she knew that once we started creating those uh, connections, we would be able to do our work better. Mm. So, so, so yeah, I love that. Um, Okay. So I want to talk about one of my favorite quotes from Catching Your Breath. Ooh, okay. Which says, yeah, it says, um, hope is a resting place for the abandoned wives and the failed ministers. Hope is the dance floor for the shattered dreams long since defeated. Hope is a promise that better days are coming. Um, I love that. It's just so powerful. I mean, that imagery is amazing. Um, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit, if you would, about that quote and how we hold on to hope when it is utterly hopeless. I, oh, 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 I love that you love that quote. So <laughs> my, my dear, dear, dear friend, Sarah, um, who also happened to be the editor for this book, it's one of her favorite lines or three lines, I guess. Um, and so that makes me real happy. I hope she'll listen to this. Um, oh my gosh, how do we hold on to hope when it's utterly hopeless? Okay. 
Sure. Uh, I'm going to be really raw with this one um, since I haven't been already. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) Okay. So, oh, geez. I'm either going to make friends or enemies here. I hope people will love me anyway. For the longest time, I thought Jesus was the only answer. And I was wrong. Um, I, I believed that if your life had fallen apart and you were in the middle of your deepest pain, your deepest crisis, that you just needed to pray the prayer of faith, take that magic Jesus pill I've been talking about already, just choose joy. Those are the three words that the mentally ill Christian hates. Just choose joy mm-hmm. and everything would be okay. But Bailey, can I tell you something? Mm-hmm. It's not true. So yeah. I, don't, I don't mean that we should discount our faith. I'm not saying that. I, I actually mean the opposite. I think that we should continue to cling to whatever's gotten us through before. But if you are living with mental illness, whether you've got a diagnosis or not, and you think that just a simple prayer of faith is magically going to take away your chaos, you're probably wrong. I, again, I know miracles can happen, but they're called miracles for a reason because they rarely ever happen. So I think that if we believe Jesus is our only hope, we're pretty hopeless. I don't think Jesus, the man who lived and walked and fished, (laughs) right, and fried up, you know, breakfast for the disciples as his first miracle after the resurrection, I don't think he ever intended for us to think Jesus is literally my only hope. I think if Jesus was sitting right here on this podcast today, he would say, oh, I'd love for you to follow after my example. And you know what? If your arm is broken, please go to the doctor. Please have that set. Please wear a cast, right? If, oh, if you need a, a yeah. hip replacement and I can't get to you to do that miracle, please go have a hip replacement. If, if you are so sad that you can't drag yourself out of bed in the morning, please go to the doctor. Please take some medicine. Please go talk to a counselor, right? I, I think yeah. that the church has done a major disservice to our people by discouraging things like medication and counseling. If you're sick, go to the doctor. If you're depressed, go to counseling. If you're so miserable that you'd rather die than face tomorrow, go to the hospital. And you know what? You can pray on your way there. And you can take your Bible with you. But for the longest time, the thing that nearly killed me is that I believed you could be a Christian or you could be crazy, but you could only be one or the other. And it's that kind of dualistic either or thinking that left me dead, for dead, in a hospital room in 2012, swallowing tens of thousands of milligrams of pills, begging God to let me die. And so that's why I say today, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and good prescription drugs. So <laughs> when life... I like that. <laughs> well, it's, it's one of my favorite lines. Thank you. Um, but when your life seems utterly hopeless, I do find great hope in Jesus. I cling to my faith. I embrace my regular spiritual practices. And I also find 
hope in my own humanity, in my inner circle, in my safe people that I can tell the nitty gritty truth to. And I take that little white pill every morning and I go to counseling twice a month. Why? Because I'm weak? Because I'm not strong enough? Because I'm not Christian enough? Because I'm not man enough? No. Because I'm a human with a broken brain and medication and therapy allow me to do the most important things, which goes back to your very first question. They allow me to do the most important things, which is show up and be the best father and be the best husband I can possibly be. Be the best pastor I can possibly be. Be the best life coach I can possibly be. Sure. But at the end of the day, if they allow me to show up better for my wife, show up better for my kids, then there is no shame. So I'm super passionate about this question, probably more than any of the others that you asked, because I was silent for nearly 30 years, and I won't be silent anymore. So where do I find my hope when everything seems utterly hopeless? I find my hope in my faith, and I find my hope in owning my story and connecting with other people who make space for me, who make room for me on the pew. Yeah. Um, I like that you tied in both faith and Jesus and um, real practical things. And I mean, I, I can't tell you for how long I thought it was just Jesus yeah. and that everything would be fixed. And I mean, now thinking back on it, why, why, why would God give us medical professionals, uh, medication that works, uh, yeah. people who understand brains. Yep. And then tell us not to use it. I mean, come yeah. on. That makes yeah. no sense. Yep. Um, and I think that something for me that really made me start to rethink all of that is that through college, I actually worked in an inpatient psychiatric uh, hospital. God bless and you. There, I mean, there were patients who were severely schizophrenic oh, yeah. or so um, depressed they couldn't get out of bed. And I would sit there and say, the nurse is bringing you your medication, just take it. Mm -hmm. And they would look at me and say, no, but I'm praying instead. Oh. And I just, I mean, I just kept sitting there thinking, how, how do you think that like, we have medication right here for you? Yeah. And they kept saying, but I have my Bible. And that's when I really started rethinking, like, like tear off little pieces of the pages and swallow them. Cause it's not going to yes. help. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's not going to do what um, you need in this moment. Yes. And it does. The thing, I think there's this fear that not only if I, if I take this medicine or if I go to counseling, it means I'm weak, but I think the real huge fear is this pokes some major holes in my faith because it means God's weak. And that's just, mm. not, it's just not true. It's just, it's just not true. You can be practical and spiritual. You are a whole person. You are, you know, mind, you are spirit, you are body, you're a whole person. So do, it's why I'm so passionate about self-care. We're a whole person. So. Yeah. Oh yeah, my You got to treat it all. Fired up about this. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, all right, so as we start to wrap up here, um, I want to talk a little bit. So this podcast is all about making room on the pew for those of us who don't feel like we naturally fit into the life of the church, which I imagine uh, probably includes those of us with mental health diagnosis, or at least it does for me. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any sort of um, ideas or guidance about what we can all do collectively to make church more welcoming and more accessible to people who have mental health diagnoses, um, or maybe just how we can better support those in our congregations um, or in our churches who have those diagnoses who are afraid to talk about it and who feel like they don't fit because of it. Boy, okay. The short answer is stop talking and start listening. That's the short answer. Mm -hmm. If you don't know what you're talking yeah. about, don't talk about it. <laughs> start listening to the hurting people that have been hiding in your pews for years. So, so people hear me say something like that, and oh my gosh, they want to get all offended. But you know what? If, if our African-American brother or sister said that about social justice, we'd have no problem with it. You know, if they tell the right. white man to shut up and just listen for a minute, we would go, you know what? You're right. I don't understand your journey. Well, it's the same thing with mental health. It's the same thing with LGBTQ community. I, why, why are the straight white men leading this conversation? Like, you know what? No, mm -hmm. to you. I need to listen to your story. To your, teach me. Tell me what it's been like. Tell me what you need. And so, so that's where it starts. It starts with shutting up and listening. And then from there, having the courage to act. So, yeah, maybe you start a self-care small group. Maybe you host a Blue Christmas, you know, and you, and you invite people in. You said, have you ever been to a Blue Christmas? Or are you familiar with a Blue Christmas? No, I haven't. Oh, they're so beautiful and so wonderful. So, um, somewhere during the Christmas season, just because, you know, people can, can feel a little extra sad, a little extra lonely during the holidays. Um, this can encompass not only the, the mental health community, but just those who are grieving, those who have lost someone. And um, so you do a blue Christmas service and you dim the lights and you have, you know, just soft music play in um, Maybe you have candles people can light in someone's memory. You might have um, note cards where people can write something and, and put it in a, a memory box. Or uh, you might encourage people to bring photos. And typically, you, you don't have, number one, you don't have somebody preach. Please, dear God, don't have somebody preach. Um, but you, <laughs> you have sort of the moderator who's going to make people feel welcome and, um, and then you might have a person or two picked out who will start the storytelling. And you just, you just let people share. That's, that's literally it. But you're just creating that shared space, that safe space to say you belong. And if you're hurting, we love you. Um, you probably are going to have two or three counselors on hand in case somebody really has a hard time. Um, they can, you know, go and, and have sort of this designated safe space to go talk to somebody. But, um, you know, you can do things like that. You can, again, you can do a, a self-care small group um, that maybe is co-led by um, a pastor or a lay leader and also someone who's a social worker or a counselor or something like that would be fantastic. 
Um, it, you know, it, it can look a million different ways for a million different churches. Maybe you have a, a self-care Sunday. Um, maybe you bring Steve Austin or someone like him to your church to talk about it from <laughs> the pulpit on a Sunday. That's not a sales pitch, but you know, somebody who has this experience who, um, you know, can share and say, Hey, this is what it's like. Here's how I make it through. We, um, at our church this year, we, we did that in September and, um, just shared a whole sermon on the woman at the well and suicide. And then that afternoon mm-hmm. had a suicide prevention workshop. Um, why are churches not hosting suicide prevention workshops? The first place the person who is desperate and hurting and may want to die is going to go. They're either going to go to their primary care physician or they're going to go to their church. And yeah. <laughs> both of those are fairly unequipped. <laughs> um, yeah. but you, know, you can, so, so you say, yeah, I'm one of those churches that's unequipped. What do I do? Well, you know what? You may not have the money to hire a counselor to be on staff. That's okay. But you have a referral network. You get on Google, spend 30 minutes, get on Google and make a list of all the counselors, all the therapists, the mental health clinics in your area. Figure out the ones that have a sliding fee scale for people who don't have insurance and can't afford it and have that list at the front desk ready to go for the person who calls or the person who shows up and says, help. Um, You know, the other big thing I would say is for the pastor who says, you know what, I, in seminary, I had one counseling course. <laughs> so yeah. I don't have the answers. I don't know what to do. Okay, say that. Say, I don't have the answers. I don't know what to do, but I'll drive you to counseling. I'll connect you with somebody. Mm-hmm. I'm going to check on you. I'm going to connect you with resources in your community that will help. You'd have no problem doing that if somebody had a heart attack in the lobby at church. <laughs> like you're not going to yeah. try to do open heart surgery as the pastor. But for some reason, because we view mental illness as an emotional problem, we think that pastors are the ones that are equipped to help. And it's just not true. It's not their job. So stop putting all that pressure on you to have all the answers. You don't. And it's okay. Just be able mm-hmm. to connect people to the resources in your community that can help. Yeah. Um, I think that advice is um, fantastic. And I hope, you know, everyone listening, if you're a leader in the church, take some of those ideas. If you're not a leader in your church, take this podcast or take Steve Austin's information over to your leaders. Um, I mean, that's, that's just such great um, advice and guidance. And I, I appreciate you. Um, well, I will, if it's okay, to all a, of that. a shout out to another podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, of course. Go for it. <laughs> there, um, my, my dear, dear, dear friends, uh, Robert Vore and Holly Oxhandler, um, co-host CXMH, which is a podcast at the intersection of Christianity and mental health. And every week they have a church leader and or a mental health professional on the show. And they talk about issues that are at the intersection of Christianity and mental health. So if you really want to do the deep dive and learn some fantastic trip tips and tricks and get some resources, books and speakers and all of that, my gosh, go listen to CXMH if you want to do that deep dive. Yeah, awesome. And I will um, link that as well. And I will link everything um, also that Steve is going to tell us. If you want to go ahead and tell everybody um, who maybe this is their first experience or connection with you, uh, where they can find you and your books and how they connect with you online. 
Yeah, sure. First, thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation, fantastic questions, and just just always an honor to share my journey. So thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. Yeah, of um, course. Yeah, so where can you find me? The easiest thing to do is just go to IamSteveAustin.com. You can get to my blog. You can find out about coaching, um, the courses I do. I do. I offer monthly self-help, self-guided self-help courses. Um, you can find my social media. All of that is there if you just go to IamSteveAustin.com. Awesome. Um, and again, all our listeners, I'll link that for you um, as well. All right. Um, well, that is all um, we have today. Thank you so much for being here. I mean, sharing your story and all of this um, wisdom about mental health in the church. This is something that we definitely uh, need to be focused more on. And so I just, I really appreciate you and your honesty and your vulnerability um, sharing with us, uh, sharing with us about all of that. Um, well, it's been my honor. Today. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, have um, a wonderful day and thanks so much for being here. Thank you. See ya. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation and I hope you learned as much as I did from Steve in this conversation. He is such a good uh, guide in this space. He has such good advice for mental health and for self-care. I really encourage you to find your way over to his website, IamSteveAustin.com. He has a ton of great resources over there to guide you on your own mental health journey. You can also find both of his books there on his website, or you can find them on Audible if you would rather listen. You can also find Steve on Twitter and Instagram at IamSteveAustin.com. Well, friends, I am so honored that you have decided to join me on this journey. Meet me back here on Tuesday, January 8th, which is when we will be launching the very first episode of the Making Room on the Pew podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and download the podcast so you don't miss a thing and feel free to share on social media with the hashtag making room on the pew. In the meantime, connect with me on social media and my website where you can sign up to receive monthly e-newsletters from me as well. I am at Bailey Joe Welch on all the things, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and that's my website too baileyjoewelch.com. I can't wait to hear from you. Thanks for listening.